Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Wither and I'm joined as always by my best man Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Tarzan? I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so, it's here. When I asked you in our one year pod anniversary episode what two episodes you want to do most, you said a Philip Seymour Hoffman profile and just as equally weighted a Magic Mike deep dive. So here we are. How you feeling? Oh, man, this is so exciting. I've been waiting for this one for a long time. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. And the only way I get mad about movies when talking to people really is when people shit on something that they've never seen. And that will really irk me. And I will defend the movie very, very aggressively to go, you know, shit on it all you want. But, you know, at least give it like the hour 50 minutes that it deserves before you shit on it. And because that's really the only thing like I stand on my soapbox about with movies, I have had to defend this movie more than a lot of others in the past decade because it came out in 2012. It is one of the biggest judge a book by its cover movies ever. So I've had to come to the defense of the movie a lot. And I think that was kind of how your relationship with the movie started off. So I just want to hear what was your first exposure to Magic Mike? So... I remember when the movie came out in 2012, and I was one of those judgmental people. Yeah. I know exactly what that is. I'm never going to see that. And that was it. That was my position that I held for years until we met. And then in one of our many, many, many conversations, you just dropped how much you liked that movie. And I was just sort of like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. And I remember you were just sort of like, it's better than you think. It's better than you think. And it was your nicest way of saying it. Fast forward to the lockdown. I think it was a Saturday night. And I'm just going to watch whatever the first movie that comes up on my Netflix or whatever streaming queue that just kind of like perked my like interest. It's always a really good way to avoid the Netflix black hole is just to pick whatever movie first jumps out at you. Yeah, that's what I do every damn time. It's very, very easy. Every time. It's actually masterful how you do it. I have never spent longer than 20 seconds picking out something to watch with someone. Boom, there, done. It's Sit so back funny. in five minutes, you'll be in the movie. It's all good. <laughs> so I remember I, I was sitting there and I go, Magic Mike, you know what? I had judgments about this movie. Alex liked it a lot. It's Soderbergh. Let's fucking do this. And I proceeded to have the best two hours. Like, it's it's a high-ranking movie in terms of having one of my favorite times watching a movie. Yes, and I absolutely love that because I woke up to a sea of text messages from you. Very rare for you. <laughs> and I... I, at first, I thought you were kidding, and then I went, nope, he like he got it. He watched it once, and he got it. This is exactly how I felt watching it, and this will always be one of the most, in terms of first watches, one of the most memorable viewing experiences I've ever had. So just I'll set this up really quickly. So I'm a maniac, so I'm there opening night, movie theater. It's like <laughs> <laughs> we're in June 2012. I'm there. I am all for it because I have a sneaking suspicion that this is not going to be the movie that everyone else thinks it is. So I go to like the 5 p.m. show. I'm living in a town that it does not. This is not a movie sellout kind of town. Maybe like Friday, Saturday night at like 9 p.m. Never at 5 p.m. Sold out. And I go, 
wow, I know exactly what's going on here. So I book it to the next theater. It's like a showtime in 30 minutes, smaller theater, but I make it. I get a ticket. I walk into the theater and just walk down to the very front like I'm looking for someone. And I turn around, do like a very quick head count. And I do not see a single male face, but it is absolutely sold out. And then as soon as the movie was done, I like rushed outside because I'm crazy. I just wanted to keep track of this stuff. And I, what I saw, <laughs> I sat in the very back of the theater, but what I saw during the movie and certainly after the movie was that everyone was tricked into seeing an art film. And this was, while it does have plenty of, you know, male stripper flourishes and you get a lot of dancing, a lot of rip dabs, all that stuff, a lot of buns. Okay. This is an art movie made by an art director. I will never forget looking at the sides of people's faces and the back of their heads and all these women who just wanted to see like this sex romp. And it really wasn't that. And I knew then that this movie was going to be a phenomenon financially, which it was because I figured they're going to get all the target demo audience at that trailer, which is not a, the trailer is not representative of the movie at all there. That's going to bring all the ladies And then the art crowd in a few weeks is going to get wind of this and come and support it. And that's kind of what happened. And it appealed to so many different audiences that it became this like sneak smash sensation with one of the best profit margins in like modern Hollywood history. It's just nuts. (laughs) And I love it. I fucking love this movie. But really quick, if you've if you've never seen this, we're going to talk about the whole thing. But if you made it this far in the podcast and haven't seen it, just stop and go watch it. It's probably available on a streaming platform. Then come back and give us a shout because it's really going to be worth it to have seen the movie first and not have it be spoiled here. This is really two movies in one. It's One is about a young, aimless, arrogant-as-all-hell kid named Adam, played by Alex played by Alex. I can't even pronounce my own fucking name. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I was having a hard time with his last name. <laughs> Playing by Alex Pettifer. And he's adjusting to the party lifestyle in Tampa. Women, friends, drugs, male stripping. The other movie is about a grounded, would-be capitalist named Mike Channing Tatum, who has made a name for himself as a local stripping kind of legend in Tampa. He takes Adam under his wing. They're both sort of mentored by this maniac named Dallas, played by Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) Mike falls for Adam's sister. They strip with a hilarious band of misfits, but... Again, I knew from it's like minute five when Mike is driving to work and that camera for no reason whatsoever just whip pans to the other side of the truck. I knew then that I was in an art movie and this was going to be way, way different than people thought. He's got that crazy filter on the lens to make it deep, deep yellow. But when that just in the back of his truck, when it whip pan, I, I remember I wrote a review of the movie and I remember like talking about that in the first paragraph, just going you don't really see this in movies a lot. Like it, the camera's moving for no reason, but it's setting a beautiful, beautiful tone. So yeah. When did you know you were going to love this movie? I honestly think that, I mean, there's, there's, I'm going to give like the, the cheat way and then probably the real way. The cheat way was actually from the, from the second it started. Oh yeah. The, um, the old school Warner bros. And then yep. you hear McConaughey like, let's fucking go. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right, you know, and that's a that's the thing, like to really pay attention to the very first thing that you hear or see. So, you know, I'm I'm hearing McConaughey's voice, I know it, but the energy behind it, and then we just get that beautiful opening shot of him full back with the spotlight on him, yep. giving his 
you know, instructions or whatever you want to call them, opening the show as as, yeah. as you would. Can you touch it? Yeah, can you touch it? And dude, and like, and I mean this, like, like this is like, it's not a weird thing to say. This shit's sexy. Oh <laughs> like yeah, the, the, he knows what he's doing. He, he, he knows, knows what he's doing. What he's doing. Yeah. Like oh, it's yeah. so seductive, and you're like, I get it. I fucking get it. So I think I knew right then and there that I was like, oh, I I think I'm going to like this. This is not at all what I thought it was going to be. But I think probably the first time that I really, really started to like it was the um, when Mike gets to the uh, the roofing job mm-hmm. and we get that pan that the camera makes up the ladder onto the rooftop and you get that overhead of the ocean and but that color, oh my god! Yeah, I mean Soderbergh is just so good at this. But it was just like that hazy, like green. I don't even know what you would call that color, but it's not. It's not a color you see in life, right? So I just remember seeing that, and I was like, oh man, this is this is going to be really, really cool. So I think that was the moment that it really set in for me that I'm going to love this. And that's that's a great shot. It's all, like a one and, mm-hmm. you know, you're outside, you're on a second floor, and then you somehow go up to the, the roof, which is really cool. Again, shot by Peter Andrews, which is a pseudonym for Steven Soderbergh himself. He shoots and edits a lot of his own movies, including this one. And he, as a cinematographer, has very, very specific rules for himself for each project. I don't have them all memorized, but like for instance, in this movie, it's he, he he's allowed to apply that yellow filter outside in Tampa that does not come on in the strip club. It's very yeah. like saturated, very 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 crisp photography. Go watch like go watch a scene of Magic Mike where they're outside back to back with a scene of Logan Lucky where they're outside back to back. It just they look so so different and he's just he's giving himself different rules which that's one of the reasons why he's always been one of my favorite cinematographers because while there is an aesthetic to Soderbergh's movies of course I love that he is challenging himself every time and not going like oh yeah this this is a Steven Soderbergh movie because it looks exactly like every other one you know there are always rules and he sets really really great photographical limitations and precedents for himself in this movie and it's one of my favorite things about the movie absolutely you're right and he does it for every movie because you're right Mm -hmm. his aesthetic appears in it's unmistakable in all of his movies but if you were just to take magic mike the color scheme that he uses for so many of his scenes is so different than traffic Mm -hmm. and because that's like another very colorful movie right and you're right like the club scenes are not that Every other scene when we're in Shang Tatum's apartment, it, it, yeah, it's it's very, very specific. Yeah, he's breaking a ton of rules. And I mean, we're going to get to favorite scenes later, but the way he shoots the few drug sequences and party sequences in the movie are just they're really inspiring and the, the way he cuts them together. But we'll get to that in a bit. But while we're on Soderbergh to understand Magic Mike and it, it's sort of. Because, you know, Mike is a really optimistic guy. He's got all these side hustles. He's going, he's going. But it's kind of a pessimistic movie because nothing's really working out for him. This friend that he takes under his wing screws him over. His boss kind of screws him over. So you got to kind of understand where Soderbergh was in his career. This movie came out in 2012. And Che, which Soderbergh released in two parts in 2008, 
pretty much ruined him. The way he had to make it, the way it was received by critics and audiences, which is to say, barely, it didn't get a lot of attention. He's like, I'm out. I'm pulling the plug in five years. I am retiring from the film business. He had Magic Mike, Side Effects, and Behind the Candelabra, and that was it. And what we have here with his kind of big FU to Hollywood is he makes a very conscious decision to cast story aside and really be only concerned with how a movie is told or form. And now he, when he does interviews, he talks a lot about this now, but he doesn't, he doesn't concern himself with what a movie's saying. He only concerns himself with how it's saying it. You know, how am I going to shoot this? How am I going to cut it together? That's why he bounces around to so many different genres. Cause he's like, Oh, what's a cool new way for me to tell this story as opposed to what's a cool new story. And there's a subtle difference there. He said the last film quote unquote that he made was Che. And ever since then, he's just made movies. He's made movies that he hopes have some entertainment value that hopefully get the money back for the people who put the money into it. And it's it's a really different approach. It's not the same filmmaker with the same approaches who made Traffic and Aaron Brockovich in the same year. And I think that's okay. My my whole point about all this is to say, like, Magic Mike is a movie made by a guy who's kind of been screwed over by the system and yet he still knows what he's doing. And that just all plays through in the movie for me. It's crazy. I didn't know any of that either. And that's mm-hmm. a very, very fascinating way because you look at his body of work post Che. Mm-hmm. One could say that that's the best of his work. Right. And um, so to to kind of see how he continues to challenge himself, but he's also working all the time. Right, right. The, the dude does not stop. No, never. What an interesting person. Oh, yeah. He's the closest thing I have to sports because I don't follow any sports. But like I know that people who love professional football, they typically have like one team, but they'll also just watch any game, you know, because it's on and they love football and he makes so much stuff or he's involved in so much that I'll watch anything he does. Like he had that Quibi show that. I, I downloaded Quibi just for it, and I spent like two hours watching it. Cool. He had that fucking awesome thing on HBO called Mosaic where you could download the app and like choose your own story. Again, we're just talking about form here. He's talking about how is a story told. That's what I've always appreciated from him. And I think one of the things that could have potentially got him out of his retirement early because he didn't make movies for four years. He goes from Behind the Candelabra which premieres on HBO to Logan Lucky in 2017. But he had The Nick, which is an amazing show. He did that. So yeah, he was always constantly working, but he and Channing Tatum basically footed the bill for Magic Mike. I don't know how much of the money was theirs, but the six to seven million dollar budget was largely theirs because they couldn't find anyone to back it. (laughs) And this movie goes on to make $167 million. That is asinine like theatrically in the world that is absolutely insane so um whatever the numbers are i guess it's none of our business but they became filthy rich off this movie he and channing tatum and it's it's just really really good business so i always love that as a selling point too that this is this is like one of the ultimate movies that could because it you no one expected it to be this type of movie and then who would have expected it to be this like financial titan and it speaks to um to channing tatum's character too all about Mm -hmm. business (laughs) exactly he's all about it 
I want to get on to Channing Tatum when you, I think you had a fair assessment of him, which is a lot of people may have viewed him as the step up guy, which I did too. So was this the movie that kind of convinced you that he's a good actor and he can't act? Well, I, the first thing I remember seeing him in that I really liked him in was 21 Jump Street. Oh, nice, nice. But that's not fair to him because I had not seen much of his earlier work. I I have not seen the Step Up movies. I just saw this guy kind of popping up around that like late 2000s, mid-late 2000s. You know, this good-looking dude. And I'm like, all right, here he comes. Here comes one of those actors that, you know, he looks really good, fits the bill for a lot of things, but probably can't act. And that's just completely judgmental on my part. When I saw 21 Jump Street, he made me laugh. (laughs) And since then, I have been very open to him. So by the time that this time last year, I rolled around to this, I did not have a Channing Tatum uh, judgment issue. That being said, I did not think that I knew I was going to be getting the performance that I got from him in this. Yeah, This is like... One of those roles that no one else could do, I don't think. I mean, someone else could physically, but to embody that certain type of charm, that certain charisma along with the dance moves and to feel so real and honest and and raw, he's magnetic in this movie. It's it's truly, um, it's probably the movie that I associate with him as being the best he's done so far. Yeah, he's in, he really is incredible in it, and he's wildly charismatic. There's just no like danger to him, but he can still hold his own. And what's kind of, if you're a fan of the movie like we are, what's kind of funny is when you rewatch it, when the dance scenes happen, like in the club, and there it's all of the guys dancing. Don't pay attention to Tatum and just watch the other guys and you can see how much he's carrying them because it's, you know, it's very smartly shot. It's all very smartly framed. He's always front and center. And those are legitimate, like insanely impressive dance moves. And the other guys are just, you know, they're trying to like keep up as best they can. And I, I really get a kick out of that of like, you know, they worked with what they had. Again, this is not a lot of money. Like, this is not a big budget at all. And they had, obviously, some dance preparation, and Channing Tatum specifically. Like, the, his choreographed dances in it are, again, just remarkable and really kind of awe-inspiring. But They are. I, I do think it's fair that as we go through, I want to kind of highlight, just as a way to address them and then squash them, some of the criticisms that the, the movie has gotten saying I expected like a stripper sexy romp and it wasn't that's not a criticism that's because you judge it before you saw it and you know sorry some people have criticized the movie as saying that he and his dynamic with Cody Horn who plays kind of his love interest is a little stilted not really believable and my counter to that has always been these are two people who are speaking how people in life actually speak which I know that is a difficult thing to watch and to accept, but this is something that Soderbergh is clearly interested in. Not in every movie, but if you watch The Girlfriend Experience, that's another weird small movie of his that I love. All the characters are talking in a very, very naturalistic way, and Bubble is another example, tiny movie of his that I love. So I just kind of wanted to get your take on that. Like, How do you feel about you know, in particular, that argument they have when they're stuttering and stammering, it's clearly not an issue for me, but how do you think? 
No, I I really actually loved her in this movie for that reason. Me too. It felt like a very very real person, and it, and I think the movie needed that in a way because you're you're whisked away into this world that ultimately kind of ends up turning kind of ugly. But in the beginning of it, it's all spectacle. It's all just this wildly fun and infectious and just awesome party. And she's this person that comes in and is just sort of like, I'm not about this. I'm not about my brother doing this. I'm not about this life. But my favorite scene from her Mm-hmm. Is and it's also the scene where I realized Channing Tatum was that good. Is the scene where she first comes to the club because she finds out that her brother is stripping there, so yeah. she goes to see it begrudgingly, and she hates what she sees when when she's watching her brother do it. But then Tatum rolls up, and there's something about the way that he is with her and the way she is with him. That's why I discredit this criticism Mm -hmm. because chemistry is chemistry. You don't have to be a good actor. You don't have to be a bad actor. Sometimes the greatest actors in the world just don't have chemistry. These two, like there is, they've got that chemistry and the way that he talks to her and tells her that one that he'll take care of his brother or her brother and then to like stick around for his dance and then watching the cuts between this unbelievable dance that I'm oh, just yeah. sort of like, I, I'm, on, I'm on the edge of my seat. I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And then her cuts to where she couldn't be more turned off to start. And then each one of her cuts, I'm like, by the end, when she leaves, she has to leave because oh, yeah. she can't take it anymore. Like she's like, it's too hot. It's too much. It's too hot. Magic Mike got to her. That's a long story to debunk that criticism, in my opinion. Largely what helps that chemistry is he has this kind of this charm that can't be beaten down. Like, I think the way he even starts that conversation is off an inside joke that, you know, she was kind of bratty to him earlier about not making breakfast. So he kind of injects that right away. And that just you're really watching. Again, this is a movie made by someone who knows what they're doing. And he that's a good way to connect scenes, connect characters, all that stuff. And... <laughs> You know, kind of at the at the center, but also at the outskirts of this movie, whenever he's on screen, he's at the very, very center of it. We have Matthew McConaughey, who is just absolutely born to play this part. This is right smack dab in the McConaughey. It's when he kind of emerged back in 2011 and goes, I'm here. I don't want to mess around. He this is 2012. He was in this and Killer Joe same year. He wins his Oscar the next year for Dallas Buyers Club. But this is, again, I think the only the main negative thing about this movie being judged by its cover perhaps released in summer which uh, of course all that would have helped it financially was that he was not seriously considered for serious oscar contention because i really think he could have been nominated for supporting actor for this and i'm going to toss in the nominees in a second and we're going to talk about them but tell me about dallas and magic mike like i was saying in the beginning the way that he opens the movie oh yeah that if that was his only scene in the movie that could be an Academy Awards supporting actor role. <laughs> so true. It's so true. Because you think about Wolf of Wall Street is kind yeah. of similar in that way. Like he, the dude just pops up, but he's got a more substantial role in this. And man, I, I think you're right. Like that that born to play 
it just feeds off of his natural energy, I think, to be in a position like this where he exudes sexuality because he's always been that guy, even mm-hmm. as the romantic comedy. Maybe it's been a little bit more stuffed because you can't be that brazen and open in a movie like that. But in this, it's just literally balls to the wall. Yeah. I think my favorite scene of him in the whole movie is when he's teaching Adam Pettifer how to dance. In the gym, yeah. And he's just teaching him in front of the mirror, and he's like, all right, all right, and then you pop it, (laughs) or whatever he says. Stick it, yeah, and that's... Stick um, it, stick it. I realized yesterday, rewatching this movie for like the 20th time, or I forgot this, that's all one shot, I believe. Camera's just like tilted there and it just keeps rotating around around, picking its angles very carefully to not catch himself in the mirror. But yeah, it's it's incredible and it's shot so well. And that's just the way he's like his holding his body and carrying his body. Oh, my God. I love it. I love that. And what he's wearing. And and I got to say this, too, from like an, an actor's point of view is that. You know, there's a whole entire thing that the actor makes the costume or the costume makes the actor. This like it, it would be so easy for anyone else to be wearing what he's wearing, particularly in that scene. And it would actually be distracting because mm-hmm. you'd be like, no matter what, no matter how good a shape they might be in to wear a like a yellow neon tank top that's covering just below your nipple and like these speedo shorts, but he he's so natural in it. It's oh, like yeah. you almost don't even notice the costume because <laughs> he fits it so well. But there's also one other long take that I really really love that's very very subtle, and it's in the um, storm in mm-hmm. the when they're all in the house, and he reveals that they are making the move to Miami. Mm-hmm. He goes from person to person and congratulates them or says something very specific to that individual based on his relationship to them. And it's all one take as he's slowly moving around. And there's a lot of people. And the camera is very, very smooth. And it's very it's following from person, moment, until he finally gets Channing Tatum. And while that might not seem like a big deal, you got to think about how that's actually going to go nonetheless, like you feel that moment that he has with each person and the camera is right there with him. And I just remember noticing that shot the second time and being like, it's just very, very well done. Very well done. And that's just a great sequence, like front to back all told. We get Riley Keough, who shows up there toward the end of that sequence. It was the first time I saw her on screen because her and Soderbergh have developed a really good relationship and she was in like Logan Lucky, but she was also the star of the girlfriend experience season one, which he executive produced, which is honestly just some of the best acting I've seen the last 10 years, TV, movie, whatever. We we are a very big Riley Keogh fan at what are you watching podcast? Um, She, I think she's probably like her and Christopher Abbott to me, Mm are like the two most indie actors that are out there by truly representing the types of movies that they make and how good they are in them. They're like the real indie darlings, I think, of today. Yeah, uh, certainly by my book and by your book. And, you know, they haven't... I've seen every single thing both of them have done. And I Mm -hmm. cannot say I've liked all of them. Who cares? That's fine. doesn't matter. I'll see everything, every single thing they do. I'm here for it. I'm all on board. And what... I mean, yeah, it's... What she's going through personally in her life is like really, really hard. And I understand from a lot of different levels and the way that she's been 
you know, on the press tour for Zola and having to talk about these really, really difficult mental health issues. And she's doing it. You know, I've been I've been paying attention very closely and it makes me respect her even more. So I yes, I love her. And she's cool in this movie. I didn't, I didn't know any of that. What's going on? Her brother died by suicide like a few months ago, completely unexpectedly. And she uh, no one like she had no idea that it was going to happen. And it has gutted that entire family, including oh, her mother, Lisa Marie Presley. So she, it, you know, that <laughs> I know what it means to and what it looks like to let that ruin you. I've seen it happen to people. That exact thing happen and it ruins a person and sends them to an early grave. And she has clearly made the decision to not let this tragedy define her. And that is difficult in itself uh, that's a very, very difficult thing to do, one. And then number two, when your job is to, part of your job, is to go in front of press and yeah. sell a movie, and you have to do that, and it is coinciding. It The first time she's in the public eye since this horrible thing happened to her is to promote a movie. And, you know, you can... You can take that any number of ways. And I just saw this great like interview she did with Variety. It's like half hour long. She's got her she got her feet like tucked up into her chest like she's very comfortable. And she just really breaks down. She talks about the movie very well and she sells it well and then talks about this real shit that in such a fucking eloquent way that I could not help but be really more just inspired by her. I, I just think she's a really, really cool individual. <laughs> and then we, I didn't mean for this to turn into that, but like that, I really respect that stuff. And I think she is an incredibly talented actor and just a really cool human being. So yeah, that's my Riley pitch. Uh, well, Hey, that's about the best pitch I can imagine anyone giving yeah. anyone, but that's really, I didn't know any of that. That's, that's, that is, yeah. that's, that's remarkable. I would, I want to say about her in this movie this is one of those moments where, because she doesn't have a lot of lines, she's right. not in the movie for very much. It's mostly just kind of like like just a cameo, you, yeah. as you might say. But the way that she enters into the movie is from Adam Pettifer um, is looking at this girl at this party, and she clearly looks like someone that lives a certain way, is a certain type of person, demands certain things in her life. You just get all of this from the way that she looks at him and Channing Tatum's line that he says to Adam Pettifer, which I love. He goes, you don't need that in your life, bro. Right. Meaning that we know exactly what danger in oh, all yeah. facets this person probably represents if you were to put her in your life. And then that's it. But that, but, but you get it. Like, oh, you don't yeah. need any more. It feels very real. And... That's just all a credit to her as the way that she turned her body and looked at the camera to justify that line to make everything known and understood. That's fucking incredible. I'm yeah, I'm just waiting. I've been tracking her career really closely since this movie really and just waiting for waiting for the Oscar nominations to come in. They got it it have to happen at some point, but to kind of close the gap on Matthew McConaughey here, just while we're on the subject Supporting actor 2012, here's what we got. We got Alan Arkin, Argo, Robert De Niro, Silver Linings Playbook, Philip Seymour Hoffman, The Master. Like, what the hell? It's funny that that was even nominated. Like, that should have won everything. Tommy Lee Jones, Lincoln, Christoph Waltz wins for Django Unchained. So, does Matthew McConaughey get in there at all to you? And and or does he win? I'm fine with him knocking out 
Arkin, Tommy Lee Jones. I, I think that's fine. One of those two. Uh, but yeah. I mean, do you think he? Do you think he deserved to get nominated for this? Like genuinely, because there was a genuine Oscar campaign behind this to get him nominated, which would have been his first nomination. But you know, do you think? I one hundred percent would have if I was making the Oscars for myself would have included him in in the in the nominations without question who wins that award to you though uh i mean i think at the end of the day it's got to be phil yeah it has to be yeah I, I i just don't i just don't understand how it can't be um but mcconaughey's who if phil wasn't in there uh that would be boom mcconaughey winning yeah it's a show stealing performance well, he damn near steals. Well, he absolutely steals every scene he's in. I want to use that as a launch point to talk about some of our favorite scenes. There's two I really love. There's that when they hook up with the birthday girl crowd and, it, you know, the camera kind of inverts and then it goes to the backflip off the bridge. It's just a really, really cool sequence cut together really well. But my I think my favorite sequence in the movie is when Channing Tatum's just like he's pissed. He's been pissed and he walks up to Alex Pettifer and he's like, we're going to get fucked up tonight. And, you know, when two guys kind of say that to each other and one of them's real, real serious about it, it's like, uh, and just where it takes off from there, like cuts to black and white, you get this black and white drug deal, which is really cool. And then them tripping at a club and rolling in a club and it's a really well shot drug scene. And it's, and then again, it's also a movie that's not afraid to show you the consequences of that fun. And it really does. And I just, I really like those two sequences a lot. But what are some of your favorite scenes? Well, I just, to piggyback off of that, um, I, I was noticing in the second time watching it that any time that Channing Tatum's character is in a bad place, um, the camera angles that go along with him are never how we ever see him in any mm -hmm. other shot like there's that one beautiful shot where he comes home and kind of collapses with a thing of whiskey but he's upside down oh, or yeah. it's a, a, a complete 90 degree angle so he's sideways well that jump cut to him and olivia munn like post-coital yep. on the couch is a brilliant framing but yeah yeah absolutely, absolutely and there's that reddish thing that's always around him and uh and and even when he's in the club and he looks really he looks really fucked up uh, so it's very, very cool when you see the consequences that start happening in this movie because they really do. Like it, it, at first, it's a party, but then the movie really becomes something quite more serious. Mm -hmm. But the scene that I love the most this time around, um, Channing Tatum goes into the restaurant and runs into Olivia Munn. Ooh. She's and she's with this. I'm with my fiance again. Speaking to scenes where what's not being said this scene is another masterful example of that because Channing Tatum you're watching him right on camera truly not being able to process the situation for a number of reasons that I took is that he doesn't understand how she even could have a fiance based on her behavior but then also him dealing with am I just that guy yeah my thing is like does this fiance know about me or know that she's messing around? Cause he handles it like very casually. Like very, I, I, my read is like, am I a cycle? Am I a psychology experiment? Like what the hell's going on here? Yeah, but yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and it becomes a little bit more known that it, like the way he views himself is questionable in his own eyes is like, it, am I just this 
stripper that this girl just wants to use, but he feels he's so much more than that. But in reality, that's maybe how the world just sees him. Mm -hmm. In that moment, he's really kind of like trying to feel out, is this what's really happening? Is this the, is this what I'm actually dealing with? He can't get a word out. He's just stuttering. And Olivia Munn just cancels all of it by just saying, it was good seeing you. Yep. Oof. There's so much that any other writer director would do where that scene would play out in a whole entire conversation of dialogue where all of this was the, the guy who has the most dialogue in that whole entire scene is the fucking fiance who excuses himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I really, really love that because I thought that was a very, very tense emotionally full and alive scene and i really loved it that's one of the always fun things for me it's like does this guy know what's going on and oh man i yeah i love all the twists and turns of that um and then i mean just another great sequence is the whole sandbar party ah. which starts great and it's sandbar its own, party. yeah it's its own perfect little standalone sequence and my favorite matthew mcconaughey portion of that movie is when they introduce him at the sandbar he's just pouring that wine and talking about how he would raise kids like he's just so hysterical and he has an answer for everything oh god i love that scene so much and not to mention that beautiful beautiful sparkly shot that happens when channing tatum oh, and yeah. cody horn are walking where they're in the sun camera is the way it is that little sparkly effect just happens, and it's beautiful. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely beautiful. And he's really putting those filters to good use during that scene because it's just those yellows are, God, they're so gorgeous to look at. I love that sequence. I would be amiss if I did not bring up <laughs> being uh, the fan of wrestling that I am, the fact that oh, yes. Kevin Nash is in this movie <laughs> playing Tarzan. One of my favorite scenes, because he doesn't really have too many, his biggest scene is uh, when we first meet this misfit ragtag group of male strippers, and he is like trying to initiate Adam Pettifer's character into the into the scenario by making him try to like you know wax his legs or like like yeah, put oil on cre- them oil yeah. him up <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and probably in many sports but in wrestling this is like how guys would you know, basically bond back in his day of wrestling. You, they call it ribs. You kind of like, you Mm -hmm. pull a prank or you kind of like, you're trying to feel out who this person is. Can we fuck with this guy? So this scene to me, knowing who Kevin Nash is and knowing what wrestling is just seemed to me to be like an absolute 100% way that like, that's how that would really happen. And then the fact that like Adam Pettifor actually does kind of go with it. He's like, I'm not doing this. He's like, come on, man. Just, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And then he's like, I can't believe he did it. And he goes, you're cool, man. You're cool. Yeah. That warmed my heart. And plus also, if you watch Kevin Nash's dances in it. Oh, yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> he doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything. He just like strides back and forth. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. It's hilarious. It's so, it's so good. funny. He's Tarzan. Uh, he gets off his body alone. He doesn't need. Yeah, to exactly. That, it, it's the look. It's 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 the shtick, the gimmick, if you will. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, speaking of good old Tarzan, and I'm going to keep my kind of remarks a little brief, but I do want to plug Magic Mike XXL a little bit. 
and I'm keeping them brief because I know you haven't seen the movie, but I do like to give this one a specific shout out. It lives in the shadow of its predecessor very well. It was uh, so this was in Soderbergh's film Retirement. So his longtime first assistant director, Gregory Jacobs, is the director. They have the same writer. Soderbergh does shoot and edit it as well. And they bring back the same that ragtag group of guys. And and Kevin Nash has way more to do, as do all the guys, Matt Bomer. All those dudes have way more to do in the second one. And another selling point for the second one is that's kind of the movie, I think, that ladies wanted the first one to be. There's just way more dancing and way more stuff. It was, <laughs> there's just way more stuff in it stuff. that I think will attract, yeah, some attention. But I, you know, I rewatched Magic Mike yesterday and then I went, I said, you know, I've, I haven't seen the sequel as many times, so I'll put that on. It's just, it's a really fun double feature. So I recommend it to anyone who loves Magic Mike, but has never kind of braved the sequel. And for the record, people who like the sequel fucking love it. I mean, people rep this movie really, really hard and look at it as way more than just like a sequel to the male stripper movie. I mean, there's way more to unpack in this about financial crisis, all that stuff. So that's just my plug. Well, I'll take it actually, because I have not seen the second one and I was almost kind of, I was skeptical about it because I love the ending of this one so much that I almost don't want to know what happens next. But upon watch rewatching it this time, I'm like, ah, I kind of want to spend more time with yeah. this world and this and then and these guys. And uh so I, I I probably will check that out. The budget is nearly doubled, so they have a few more like toys to play with and the dancing is objectively better. It just is. The dancing in XXL is fucking insane it that's is crazy repeatedly like over and over and it culminates in a, an incredible dance sequence that yeah it's just it's really really cool <laughs> it's nuts all right uh, you know because that that is one thing about this movie we we, we kind of touched on it very because we don't really know the terminology for a lot of it but yeah um overall just the dances in this movie are are truly spectacular they that you know regardless of of anything like it's just so much fun if you just let yourself have it and that and the scenes lend themselves they want you to have fun with them and it's i just remember with my drink in hand watching this movie the first time just like cheering with the crowd oh, being yeah. blown away shocked it's it's just that good of a time but like we're talking about to kind of round it out this movie has all of that but it's so much more. It's an art mm -hmm, film. Mm -hmm. It's got character. It's got consequences. It's got choices. It's it's very, very deep. Just if I didn't hammer this home well enough, if you are a Matthew McConaughey fan, I know a lot of dudes who like that guy and have seen his work, but have avoided this movie because it is the male stripper movie. And I just promise you, you are going to love his work in it. I it's don't so care. Like, you just will. He's so good in it. And it's such a good McConaughey performance it's like what you want from him is it, he delivers is it your favorite mcconaughey of all time you know i had that question that is really tough because watching it yesterday i was i was scrutinizing it for that um i can say it's my favorite mcconaughey year because uh, well, it would yeah. be either this or killer joe and that is a great it's a good lead performance and this is a good supporting one so 
Uh, yeah, it's it's one of those two. So I, they could be interchangeable for what he's doing in it. The command he has of that character, he accepted this role on the phone with Soderbergh, apparently, like after 10 minutes and went, oh, I know exactly who that guy is. He really wants this thing more than any. Oh, OK, I get that. I get that. And he just fits into it so well because you never once want to laugh at that guy. You're like that dude believes like he's he is doing it. Whatever he's doing in his life, he's doing it. And he's just going for it. And you believe every single thing he does. Really quick plug for Matthew McConaughey. Uh, over the past year, I read his book, uh, his autobiography. I, I know a lot of guys who have and they've liked that book and they still refuse to watch Magic Mike. I And it's like, I get it, man. But trust me. <laughs> but yeah, please go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, his book is called Green Lights. And it's just sort of overall a little bit of like a life story of his, but like picked up with like pieces of wisdom and experiences that he imparts the dude is just a fascinating guy like he really he, is he you really feel like you kind of understand like who he is and he is pretty much like that but when you when you read something like this goes a lot deeper but the thing i want to bring up about it is in terms of the way he approaches acting he does this thing that i think is really really cool is that he always refers to the character that he's working on he always calls him my guy that's my guy. I got to find my guy. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the way that, you know, an actor, you know, takes on a character to personalize it and be like, you know, you are playing him, but you are like, who is this person and all that? But like, that's my guy. That's yeah, that's who I have to, like, become friends with. And I have to, you know, do that. So I love that. I thought that was a very, very cool way of looking at how one does almost like a self-talk to themselves during their preparation and during performance. Magic Mike, we did it. Any final Magic Mike thoughts here before we go to what are you watching? Round us home. This is one of your top two episodes of the year here. So go see it. Like if you Please haven't go see it. Yeah. And 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 if you have seen it, see it again. Talk to us on Twitter about it at WAYW underscore podcast. We will talk about this movie for as long as time will go because we could i mean there's so many scenes that i just want to talk about over and over and over but we got to go we got to end the show we do we got to end the show here we're going to round out with what are you watching i can go first again since i kicked it to you for a lot of them um i'm i'm gonna kind of keep it on theme here but i'm gonna go with another movie that a lot of people still continue to judge by its cover but it's awesome and that is haywire directed by Steven Soderbergh, released in 2011, the year before Magic Mike. Uh, Soderbergh released two movies that year. One of them became insanely popular again in March 2020, Contagion, and the other was Haywire. And I I really, really like this movie. It's a 90-minute mean little movie. It has some of the best fight scenes I've seen in any movie ever. It doesn't rely on shaky camera, quick cutting, all that nonsense. These people are like actually fighting. Gina Carano stars as some like badass super spy out for revenge after her boss screws her over. You have Michael Fassbender, same year as Shame. So this is peak fast. You got Paxton. Oh, Bill. Paxton. Oh, Bill. He's absolutely great as her dad. Again, this is 90 minutes. I put this thing on all the time. All the time. I <laughs> have the Blu-ray, but if it's on a streaming service, I'll just be like, Oh, hey, I wonder if Haywire's on anywhere and it just zips through. And yeah, this is a movie, a movie that absolutely does not really care about its story. It only cares about the way it is telling its story. If you want to know the difference between story and form, 
This is Steven Soderbergh doing form, making a fun movie. And I love it. Haywire. I'm going to stick to the same idea of um, talking about a movie that you judged before you saw it. And I'm going to go with a summer blockbuster. But the movie that I'm going to talk about is 2013 Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim. Interesting. I loved this movie in the theaters, at least, because I I don't I have not seen it again since. I completely went into it thinking it was going to be a dumb summer blockbuster. It's just not my type of thing. But I immediately fell into it and had an absolute blast in the same way that with Magic Mike, I had an absolute blast. I and, you know, I guess it kind of goes to show you that Guillermo del Toro, you just can't really do anything wrong. Like, no matter what it is, like, he's going to make it entertaining at very least. Well, that's what I always say. Like, his, not all of his movies may be for you, which is totally fine, because why does every movie by one person have to be for you? But you're, I'm always going to take away something from it. Like, Crimson Peak has some really interesting, weird stuff in it. It's like, okay, I, I will always like watching Jessica Chastain just do weird shit. So like, yeah. I'm cool with that. And yeah, Pacific Rim is, I think that was probably his intention with it to have, make like a fun, entertaining movie. And I think he succeeded. I loved every second of it. I was on the ride for that movie. Oh man. Good stuff. Good stuff. So that's Magic Mike from us to you all. We really hope you've enjoyed listening to this if you're a fan of Magic Mike. And again, if you haven't seen it, please go check it out. But this is also a movie that I have heard a lot of people kind of crapping on that, you know, maybe they saw it in 2012 and it wasn't the movie they were expecting. But I don't know. Go back and give it a little attention because it has a lot more to say than just what's on the surface. But as always, thank you for listening and happy watching. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasTostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to talk in depth about perhaps the best supporting actor who ever lived, the iconic John Gazelle. Stay tuned. I am, uh, I, I love the word crisp. Oh yeah, crisp is a great one. It rolls off the tongue. It really does, and, and it, 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 it sounds, it's one of those words that sound exactly like what it actually is. So that's no bullshit, like one of the reasons why I always love Kindergarten Cop, because the main villain's <laughs> bat, his name is uh, Crisp. That's right, it is. And I love, the, I love the way he says crisp. Better have some epic plans if you're going to miss out on a sandbar party. Happy birthday, <laughs> Mr. President.